to Pontifax. I am Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 42, Pope Innocent the First. Man, you know, you told me his name in Anastasius's episode. I did. I'm not surprised, but that's still a really dumb name. <laughs> And it is actually his biological name. We are not actually in a time period yet where they're changing their names. We're coming up on it fairly quickly, but this is definitely actually his name. Although, to be fair, it was probably Innocentious. Someone named him that. His parents looked at him as a baby and went, yeah. So the, the first sentence I have here is, according to the Liber Pontificalis, Innocent was born in Albano Laziale in the province of Rome, son of Innocentius. Oh my god, is this a George Foreman situation? Yeah, so there you go. He's named after his father, so they definitely looked at that baby and, and chose that name for a reason, so. Someone before him chose that name for his father. Whose fault is this? This is also going to be one of the most commonly chosen papal names. Obviously for the context, so this is a name we're going to look at a lot. <laughs> I know, but still, like, guys, don't be so obvious. It is definitely the most obvious of Pope names. Just get the other virtues in there, but I guess those are really girly names, like Temperance and... Well, we are going to have a Honorius for oh, Honorables oh. at some point, but we're calling him out early, so... <laughs> I also have here that this is a long episode, so we should jump right into it. So um, we're not doing that, apparently. No, we're just gonna meander. <laughs> yeah, this this man, this man who is quoted as being an energetic pope, zealous for the welfare of the whole church, is getting called out in the first five minutes. I mean, he can be energetic all he wants. His name still sucks. <laughs> well, on that note, let's let's actually jump into him. And like I said... According to the Liber Pontificalis, he was born in Albano Laziale, which is in the province of Rome, and he is the son of Innocentius. However, like we discussed last week, there is a bit of a paternity issue with Innocent in the sources, because many less diligent sources have called Innocent the son of the previous pope, Anastasius I. Yes, it was just some sort of turn of phrase. Yeah, so if you haven't listened to last week's episode for whatever reason, the confusion is based on a letter from Jerome, letter 132 Demetrius, where he refers to Innocent as being Anastasius' son. And like we discussed in Anastasius' episode, this didn't make a whole lot of sense because at the time, anybody actually reading Jerome's letter would have understood that the implication of his phrasing was successor rather than biological son. So we are officially discounting this theory. However, there is one more source, Urbano Cherry, who wrote an account of the Roman Catholic religion in the world, and he argues that Innocent was from Albania. Why, though? Well, it's an offhand mention, and he doesn't really give any evidence or reason for thinking this. So my very astute observation is that he probably has mistranslated Albano for Albania. 
We're discounting this one as well. So for our purposes, he was from Albano Laziale, and his father was not the last pope. So it is the more boring answer, but the more accurate one, because we can be accurate now. So from what we can tell, Innocent entered the church early in life, because many sources mention him growing up among the clergy, basically, with references to being in the service of the church, and at some point during this long clerical stint, he was made a deacon. We can assume that in this time, he really distinguished himself, because like we saw a few weeks ago with Sericius, Innocent was unanimously elected to be Anastasius's successor in 401. The Church of Rome is really together and unified here. They actually know who they want to rule lately, so that's kind of cool. I feel like it's a correction from all the drama of Damasus. Yeah, <laughs> so. nobody's going to get stabbed. Yeah, exactly. There, there are not going to be a pile of 137 bodies. And it seems, right from the get-go of his unanimous election, Innocent was going to build a reputation for being a very energetic and dedicated leader and a man who made firm and clear decisions in areas of papal primacy, doctrine, and of course, heresy. All right, let's be energetic about heresy, I guess. It's heresy time! I mean, we always check in with all the heretics, don't we? Do we need a jingle for the heresy time? <laughs> we do need a jingle for heresy time. If you want to make us music, write in. But otherwise, maybe we need to send a message to Ben. I did I did really like seeing a tweet that, that people are quite into quoting that it's uh, an interlude for Athanasius. <laughs> yes. Yes, on his feast day. Hooray. So yeah, it seems that Innocent really wants to check in with all of the heretics this time. So right from the get-go, we have the Novationists. Oh, they're still here. I keep forgetting. You told me originally they were going to be around for literally forever, but I keep forgetting. Yeah. We haven't really had much to say on them for quite a while other than to say, oh, they're still here. But um, they were likely getting a pretty good kick out of all of the trouble that the lapsi were causing in the church back in the papacies of Marcellus and Eusebius and... Innocent thinks that they have just been existing and being smug for far too long. So, according to Socrates Scholasticus, he became, quote, the first persecutor of novations in Rome. It's in Church History, Book 2, Chapter 9, page 158 in my copy. Also, no one forget, Socrates Scholasticus is our children's Saturday morning show. We're trademarking it now. Hands off. You can't have it. So he became the first persecutor of novations in Rome by seizing many of their churches away from them. So somehow the novationists had covertly put up a couple churches and he went, nah, those are mine now. And then at the same time, he also banished another heretic, a man called Marcus, who was a follower of Fontius, the bishop of Sirmium who had gotten himself labeled a heretic based on some of his beliefs being super, super Arian, saying that the son of Mary was only a man and that sort of thing. So there is also this group called the Fontians, who Innocent is going after. There's no more detail other than that, that he expelled and banished this man named Marcus, who was a Fontian, but there you go. There's another heresy just thrown in there. And then there are the Montanists and the Manichaeans. I thought Manny and friends got murdered. A lot of them definitely did get murdered. 
Also, I feel like Socrates Scholasticus could have a run-in with Manny and friends at some point. (laughs) (laughs) Would make for an excellent episode. So So on February 22nd of 407, the Emperor Honorius passed a pretty severe edict directed at Montanism and Manichaeanism and, quote, all other heretics, for that matter. But those two get named quite deliberately. And this decree by the emperor ordered all heretics to be deprived, quote, of all places, whether they were churches or buildings for spiritual meetings or private dwellings where they met, and they were all to be given to the Catholic Church instead. They were also forbidden from meeting together, and there were heavy fines imposed if they were actually caught. And the edict also says things like, quote, We persecute the Manichaeans and Donatists with just severity, so this kind of man shall have nothing in common with the rest either in custom or in laws. Furthermore, we do not want them to be able to take any gift or inheritance, free from whatever source that may come. So aside from taking away all of their places of worships and potentially their dwellings, it also deprives sons from becoming heirs of their fathers. And it says that last wishes of Manichaeans would be void, etc., etc. It's it's a pretty harsh edict of persecution. And it's like one step away from the violent persecutions that the Christians were dealing with not too long ago. But this is a decree that was passed by the emperor, not by the pope. And we cannot actually be sure if Innocent actually had anything to do with it or whether he was influencing the emperor to make this decision or not, or whether he even approved. But that being said, considering that the Pope had doubled down against the Montanist in Africa when he'd received a delegation requesting harsher suppression for Montanists in 404, so it's likely that he agreed. You know, In, in that case, he had actually gone to Emperor Honorius and asked him for a decree against the Montanists in Africa which he did receive, and the decree was moderately successful, so at that time, enough Montanists had been afraid of persecution, so they had relented and basically just said, okay, fine, we're going to become a Christian. They joined the Church of Carthage, so it's possible that he could have had everything to do with the harsher empire-wide decree that followed. Okay, so now we have to talk about John Chrysostom. So John Chrysostom is a very important man of the early church, who served as the Archbishop of Constantinople. He was a hugely impactful public speaker and preacher, which is why he's known as John Chrysostom, because the Chrysostom bit is a Greek epithet for golden-mouthed. Oh. So if somebody is speaking real pretty at you, you can call them your Chrysostom. No, thank you. I know. <laughs> yeah. it's. I mean, it's hard enough to say, so. Yeah, no, no thanks. He's also one of the most prolific authors in the whole of the early church and has the second largest preserved body of writing from the time, second only to St. Augustine. Huge, huge amounts of writing from this man. And this is why he gets that special designation of being a doctor of the church like Jerome and Ambrose and Augustine. So, by any account, this is a very learned, very influential, and very outspoken man, and he made a huge impression on the world around him. As the Archbishop in Constantinople, he was insanely popular with the laity, 
because he maintained a strictly humble lifestyle. But, of course, when you have a very popular, very humble leader, he was not well-liked among the wealthy and the many higher-ups in the church because he held very fast to the rules of the church. He instituted widespread reforms and preached heavily against abuses of power. Particularly, he was on the wrong side of the Archbishop in Alexandria, Theophilus, who opposed John's appointment and, according to many sources, felt quite threatened because he wanted to bring Constantinople under the influence of Alexandria rather than letting it be its own power at the time. And this is a theme we're going to see. All of the big bishops start to get afraid of Constantinople because, well, obviously that's where the emperor is. This is a position of quite significant influence. I just wrote a whole thing about that for a future pope, so we are going to come back to that idea. But this situation and having high up enemies kicked off in a really bad way for John when he accepted four monks known as the Tall Brothers who had been deposed by Theophilus for their support of Origen's teachings. Oh no, Origen again? Didn't we get rid of it? Yeah, we just condemned him last week by our previous pope in the Council of Rome. So apparently, though, uh, Theophilus had been really awful to these monks, and he had even burned their houses down. And this opened the door for people like Theophilus to accuse John because he had accepted these monks in for having Origenist sympathies. And then John also managed to get on the wrong side of the Emperor Arcadius's wife, Eudoxia, for a number of reasons that all had to do with his outspoken preaching. Basically, Eudoxia had taken quite a prominent role in the church in Constantinople, and he railed against some of her decisions. In one of his sermons, he gave a really, really strong, very, very vehement sermon against extravagant female dress. What is extravagant? Uh, so, well, I mean, it depends on who you're listening. If you listen to him, he was talking in a very general way, but the Empress felt that he was talking specifically about the way she dressed. And you can imagine, as the Empress, she dressed extremely lavishly. She had so many everything. Yes. She took this very, very personally, and she's not the only one to feel this way because we actually have quite a famous painting from Jean-Paul Lorraine, from much later on, of course, but of John giving this sermon. And uh, you can tell in this image that it definitely feels like he's confronting Eudoxia quite head on. So I'm going to send you that painting so you can have a look at it. <laughs> she does look very extravagant. She does. I mean, she looks very, very fierce in this picture. I love her. <laughs> John Chrysanthemum <laughs> looks like a f***ing golem yelling about harvests. But, it, I mean, you can tell in this sermon, it certainly feels very personal. Yeah, yeah. I, oh, she looks great. Look at her. Slay. <laughs> they had some bad blood, to say the least. <laughs> Cute Taylor Swift. Oh, that wasn't even intentional, but great. <laughs> So, um, clearly between Theophilus not liking him for taking in these tall brothers and Eudoxia not liking him for this moment, uh, there was enough religious influence in the area to get a synod together in 403, 
known as the Synod of the Oak, where they could effectively get rid of him. Bye, Gollum. <laughs> yeah. They threw all sorts of claims against him. You know, they say that he supported origin sympathies and he was declared deposed. However, John, being the outspoken and fearless preacher that he was, he refuses to recognize this council as legitimate, even though he did choose to surrender himself. He's going, I don't recognize your authority, but I'm not going to fight you physically. So he surrenders himself and this deposition goes ahead. But it does not last long, not only because there is massive popular unrest in the city, there is also an earthquake, and then Eudoxia has a miscarriage that scares the Imperial family into thinking that God was really, really angry at them for this. Oh no! Yeah, so they kind of take a step back for a little bit, and they go, okay, let's let's just... I'll try to get along. And then John's back up on the pulpit giving all the same kind of fiery speech. Clearly he has no gratitude towards them because he doesn't recognize them as being legitimate in the first place. So he's not having any of it. And he gets back up there and he's preaching and he's doing the same thing. So they have him deposed again in 404. And this time Pope Innocent gets involved. He had been informed of the deposition carried out by the Synod of the Oak. And he had received an appeal from John, laying out the facts of the case. And Innocent felt that this was quite an illegal deposition, and he also refuses to recognize the Synod's sentence, or the Synod itself. And he wouldn't recognize the new successors to John in the city, which were two men called Atticus and Ursaceus. Instead, he would order a legitimate council to preside over the matter, and to make it easier for those in the East who he wished to weigh in on the matter, he suggested that Thessalonica would be a perfect halfway place for a council. So, Innocent sent a letter with envoys to Theophilus to summon him to appear at this new council, as well as an open epistle to the clergy of Constantinople, condemning them for being part of the original deposition. He also had the emperor in the West, Honorius, write to his brother, who is the emperor in the east, Arcadius, to ask him to impress upon Theophilus the importance to showing up at this new synod. And at this time, he also sends letters of encouragement to John Chrysostom. And the two corresponded for a while and during the whole of this upcoming procedure. And these letters have been preserved, and they are online at the Documenta Catholica, and I can put up a link for anyone who might want to read them. Arcadius, though, the emperor in the East, didn't really feel like having the Pope or his brother in the West having any actual say in what was going on in the East. He liked Theophilius, and they got on well, and Theophilius wasn't directly or indirectly insulting his wife, so maybe he's going to side with that guy. He made it quite difficult for the envoys, who brought Innocent and Honorius's letters, to have access to the city or accomplish their goals. So he knows that they're there with a letter from the Pope and a letter from his brother, and he's going, mm, can't come in. No. Other sources say they were never permitted to enter the city. Some sources say they were arrested. But either way... The synod that Innocent had ordered was never actually able to be held because of all this holdup. 
And Arcadius, just to be petty, extended John's exile from couscous, which is where he was currently. Couscous? Like the thing you eat? It's not spelled the same way. It's C-U-S-C-U-S, but yes, in Cappadocia. And he sends him much further away to a place called Pidiant in modern-day Georgia. And unfortunately, John died on the way in 407. Well, now he can't tell anyone to do anything. He certainly can't. But Innocent is furious, and he refuses to give up on John's cause, even after he finds out that John is deaf. And he insisted that his name be restored to all the honor rolls of the church, called diptychs. Oh my god. So basically, he's demanding that all of the churches need to remove the stain of the deposition from John. But this isn't actually going to be done in the city until after Theophilus in Alexandria dies in 412, and the much closer looming shadow wasn't quite pressing down on Constantinople anymore. This doesn't look good for papal authority in the East, really. But nevertheless, Innocent required all the other bishops in the East, everywhere else aside from Alexandria and Constantinople, which we'll do it later, to sign a recognition that John had been done wrong and that he had been illegally deposed. And, you know, we could speculate that, even though this isn't great for papal authority in the East, if John hadn't died, maybe Innocent would have pushed even harder. A little bit of heresy, a little bit of conflict. And we have one more heresy to look at. The Miletians. Oh, they're back. They're back, and they have been causing a problematic schism in Antioch since the time of Pope Damasus and Siricius, episode 39 to 40. This is the schism that persisted long after Miletius, the bishop of Antioch, had died, and the opposing sides just kept putting their own man up for the role to be the rival for their role. So this is where we had Flavortown, the bishop. Mm-hmm. Yep, and someone gave us a glorious Photoshop. It was amazing. Guy Fieri as a bishop man. Yes, things had come to an end with the recognition of Flavian Flavortown by Pope Siricius as the official bishop of Antioch. And that was the end of that. But not quite. So, despite the fact that the Eustathian group had not elected another candidate after Evagrius, they still decided a little bit later on that, no, we actually still refuse to recognize Flavian as official. So there was a potential that when Flavian died in 404, the whole thing was going to kick off again. You know, maybe when this man dies that we've recognized as official, and these guys are still not quite recognizing him as official, we're going to have elections, elections, elections. Fortunately, it didn't, and his successor, Porphyrius, was able to rule as the sole bishop of Antioch until 412, but the Eustathians never recognized him either, so the schism is still technically active. And when Porphyrius died, there was a candidate called Alexander, who was actually able to win over many of the Eustathian schismatics to support him, so this was a perfect opportunity for a pope to step in and recognize Alexander, who is now winning favor on both sides, and help Antioch finally come to an official end of schism. It's a perfect opportunity when the pro you see the problem kind of solving itself, and you step in and go, I fixed this. So, that's what he did. But not before the Alexander that he is agreeing to recognize 
agreed that he would restore John Chrysostom's name to the diptychs of Antioch. It's a double win for Pope Innocent. He officially ends the schism, and he officially restores John in Antioch. Bonus points. So, the end of the schism was decreed with two letters written by the Pope, and then an official synod of Rome of 20 bishops, ratifying the recognition of Alexander as the new bishop of Antioch. And those are epistles 19 and 20. So that's that. And then we need to move on to the Archbishop of Thessalonica and the Decretals. And this is what Pope Innocent is very, very famous for. These are letters that are sent to the Archbishop of Thessalonica, which is often used as one of the best historical evidence for papal primacy. So here we go. Okay. Yeah, I know. It's still a new concept. We've got to really dig into it. So in the first letter, Epistle 1, Innocent writes to Anesius, the Bishop of Thessalonica, who is the same bishop, by the way, that Sericius had let Hanel Bonasus to inform him of his election to the papacy and remind him of special privileges that were held in the church. We covered all of that. So to clarify, just to be clear, 100% clear if someone, again, hasn't listened to a previous episode. The special position of Thessalonica had originally been implemented by Pope Damasus, which gave the Bishop of Thessalonica the status of Archbishop and made him the figure that had the authority to consecrate and confirm all of the bishops in the area of Eastern Illyria. So, in this letter that Innocent is now writing... He acknowledges the particular favor that has been bestowed by popes before him, and since it was his to either nullify or acknowledge, he chose to renew that authority. So, hey, I recognize that you have had all of the special privileges by my predecessors, but now, because I am the supreme authority, it is my decision whether I am going to let you keep it or take it away. And I'm going to let you keep it for now. But he also wanted to make sure that Anesius knew where the grace was coming from. So it's a pretty strong indication of, don't forget where this comes from. I am the source of your power. Eleven years later, the Pope sent another letter, Epistle 13, to Thessalonica, this time choosing to expand the authority held by the new bishop Rufus to include the administration over all the dioceses of Eastern Illyria, and to officially recognize the Bishop of Thessalonica as a representative of the Holy See, which founded a whole new precedent of strong ties between Thessalonica and the Pope, which would lead to the term the Papal Vicariate of Illyria, with the archbishops there serving as papal vicars. This isn't a term we've seen before in our ongoing history of the church. A uh, papal p vicar is somebody who is a direct representative to the Pope. So this is one of the highest honors that could be given outside of Rome. So it's pretty cool. And similarly to this, Innocent made his administrative influence known in other dioceses and bishoprics. We have a decretal written to Bishop Victorius of Rouen, who had written to the Pope for some doctrinal clarification on issues like the consecration of bishops and celibacy and clerical disputes, you know, the same sort of thing we've been seeing all the way through. And in his response on February 15th, 404, Innocent declared that all important matters, the cause majores, should be brought from an episcopal tribunal 
to the bishopric, directly to the Holy See, for their model and decisions would be the ultimate norm carried out throughout Christendom. So everything that is important still must come to me because I am going to set all of the precedents. He also sent a very similar letter, Epistle 3, to Spain, because there were still some disputes and tensions going on there with the Priscillianists that we discussed in Sericius's episode, and as well as to the Bishop of Toulouse, the Bishops in Macedonia, Bishop Decentius of Gubbio in Italy, Bishop Felix of Nocera in Campania, which is Epistles 6, 17, 25, and 38, respectively. So he's a pretty busy man at this point. He's, he's reminding bishops where their power comes from, as well as what model they need to be following, which put Rome squarely at the heart of all of it. Oh, and before we move on, there is also this one little letter that Innocent wrote to ex-superius of Toulouse in 407, which clarified exactly the list of books considered sacred in the Bible which was thought to have closed the issue of official biblical canon for quite a while. You know, back when Damasus' decree about the canons of the Bible was thought to be the Gelasius decree. So for our purposes, it doesn't mean a whole lot. But if you go and look at some reports about Innocent, they'll say he determined which canons were part of the Bible before it actually got done. But that's a historical mistake, basically. Then something happens. Something so world-shaking for the whole of the empire that no aspect of Roman history is entirely free from the influence of this moment, including the papacy. And this is the sack of Rome. This is the first time that the Eternal City had been taken in over 800 years. So way before even the earliest history of Christ. And this is a topic that on its own could be, and is, many podcasts worth of context and information. You know, we have Totalis Rankium has covered it in detail. Mike Duncan's The History of Rome has covered it in its own episode. And there are many places to hear the full story. So there is no way that we can give any summary that doesn't take a whole episode and still manages to do that event all of its justice. So... For our purposes, we are going to cover just enough context to be able to understand the role that Pope Innocent has to play here, but if you want more, there is a lot more in a lot of places. So, the siege and ultimate capture of the city of Rome started in 408 and came to a head in 410, headed by King Alaric of the Visigoths. We've talked about the Visigoths a little bit, but basically there are Western tribes of German nomadic people, collectively known as the Goths. We'll deal with the Ostrogoths and the Visigoths as time goes on, so. So many Goths. So many Goths. And we're going to be hearing about them for a while. So Alaric and the Visigoths had a fairly tumultuous relationship with the Empire at this point. Going back to Emperor Theodosius, the father of our current emperors, Arcadius and Honorius. It had begun with Alaric invading the Eastern Roman territory and being defeated by Theodosius's general Stilicho. Then there were treaties that made Alaric a vassal to Rome, and then Alaric and his men had fought on behalf of Theodosius in the West, and then there is this horrible ongoing set of circumstances where Alaric is promised some benefit of the empire, and then the empire falls through on their end of the deal. So Alaric invades and pillages until he gets their attention again. Things are smoothed over. 
appeasement happens, more promises are made, they're not followed through on, so on and so on. And this culminates in Alaric capturing the Roman territories of Noricum and Pannonia in 408. And when he does this, he demands a hefty ransom of 4,000 pounds of gold for their return. And he threatens to come to Italy if he gets ignored again. And he says, if you don't give it to me this time like you've promised before, I'm going to Italy. I'm going to the heart of it all. And the general we mentioned, Stilicho, got the Senate of Rome to agree to pay Alaric. Although the process was a little bit like pulling teeth. And at least for a second, it, it looked like it was all going to be all right. And then Emperor Arcadius dies, and Stilicho gets arrested and executed on suspicion of his death. Oh. Terrible, terrible mistake. And since Stilicho is no longer there to make everything happen smoothly, the payment for Alaric never materializes. Where'd all that money go? Well, it never got collected, and it certainly never oh. made it to him, so... Alaric repeatedly tried to come to terms with Emperor Honorius, but Honorius is just refusing and ignoring him and decides, no, nah, I'm not going to deal with this. I'm just going back to Ravenna. Now, important side note here. In previous episodes, we've already talked about the rising star and importance of Constantinople and how the majority of imperial power ruled from there as the capital in the east instead of Rome. But we should at least also make some mention of the fact that by this point in the historical timeline, Rome isn't exactly functioning as the capital of the West either. And it hasn't really been entirely relevant to our story until now. But most of the Western authority and governess at this point is coming from Ravenna, which is still in Italy but much further north, between what is today Bologna and Venice. So that's where Honorius is. He's way at the top. He's not feeling all that concerned about Alaric maybe coming into Italy. But Alaric is absolutely furious now. And he lays siege to the city of Rome in 408. And it only comes to an end when the city was forced to an immense ransom that they paid for themselves, since no help was coming from Ravenna. We are talking like 5,000 pounds of gold, 3,000 pounds of silver, silks, animal hides, treasure and wealth, spices, and what they couldn't produce on the spot was made up by melting down important statues from pagan shrines and just giving them the melted metal. We have an account from Zosimus of Alaric's part in the negotiations from the Historia Nova, Book 5. Quote, But when they spoke of peace... He used such expressions as were in the extreme of arrogance and presumption. He declared that he would not relinquish the siege on any condition but that of receiving all the gold and silver in the city, all the household goods, and the barbarian slaves. One of the ambassadors, observing, said, If you take all these, what will you leave for the citizens? And he replied, Their souls. After a long discussions on both sides, it was at length agreed that the city should give 5,000 pounds of gold, 30,000 of silver, 4,000 silk robes, 3,000 scarlet fleeces, 3,000 pounds of pepper. As the city possessed no public stock, it was necessary for the senators who had property to undertake the collection by an assessment. They resolved to supply the deficiency from the ornaments which that were about the statues of the gods. This was in effect only rendering inanimate and inefficacious these images, which had been fixed up and dedicated to sacred rites and ceremonies, 
and were decorated with precious attire for preserving the city in perpetual felicity. And since everything then had conspired to the ruin of the city, they not only robbed the statues of their ornaments, but also melted down some of them that were made of gold and silver. Among these was that of the valor of fortitude, which the Romans call virtus. This being destroyed, all that remained of Roman valor and intrepidity was totally extinguished, according to the remarks of persons who were skilled in sacred rites and observances. The emperor, resolving to conclude a peace, the money was paid to the barbarians. So, not good. And at this first stage of the siege, Pope Innocent, he was unwilling to stand idly by and see the people of Rome besieged the way that Emperor Honorius was. So a truce was arranged to allow the embassy to go to the emperor in Ravenna in hopes of getting him to agree to negotiate a peace with the Visigoths. Alaric had declared that he would withdraw from the walls of Rome if a settlement could be reached that favored him, so there was some hope. If this delegation could convince the emperor, maybe they could actually make this happen and they could move on and all be safe. And this is an envoy that Innocent personally accompanied to meet with the emperor in Ravenna and press him to make peace. And here's the thing. By this point, after the initial siege and the paying of money, it seems like Alaric just wanted to be done with it all. And he actually writes to the emperor and yields a lot of his demands. He decides, okay, you know what? I, I don't need more hostages. I don't need more payment. All I, I really would like from you, Emperor, is lands in Noricum, which is the territory he's already invaded, and grain supplies so that my, me and my people can live and prosper and serve as a vassal to Rome. So he's literally just set all of these demands that he had, and he's put them down. He says, look, if you just acknowledge that this land we've already taken is ours and you give us some grain, we will literally act as your vassals. And we can be done with this. It is the most reasonable terms ever given in this type of conflict, ever. He's just bored. He's like, look, I'm done. I'm tired. Let's just get it done. And Honorius refused. Wow. Even with the Pope there going, oh my god, what are you doing? He rejects Alaric's terms outright and says, nah, come at me, bro. So... Alaric marches on Rome once again, and this time he is not going to end in siege. He tries one last time and offers to meet with the emperor before he goes in and invades the city. He says, I'm at the walls. I'm going to do it. And Honorius turned the meeting that he set up into an ambush rather than actually meeting with him. Tried to ambush Alaric and tried to kill him, but he survives and now he's so mad. And this is one of the many reasons that Honorius will go down in history as the worst and most incompetent emperor of the Roman history, or at least one of them. He has messed this up so bad, and now there is an army that is absolutely seething at the gates of Rome. And Alaric goes forth with besieging Rome and captures the city. And they raid for three days. They ransacked every major building, including the imperial mausoleums, and they stole everything they could move. 
We have an account from a monk called Pelagius who happened to be in Did Rome. Did Pelagiarize it? <laughs> uh, uh, we're going to deal with this man later and I, you're going to make that joke again, I'm sure. <laughs> but does he? Does he Pelagiarize things? Well, I'm sure later in his story, he will just wish that he could say that it was all plagiarized. <laughs> he happened to be in Rome and he witnessed the sacking of the city before he fled to Carthage. So this is what he has to say in his letter to a woman called Demetrius. This dismal calamity is but just over, and you yourself are a witness to how Rome that has commanded the world was astonished at the alarm of the Gothic trumpet when that barbarous and victorious nation stormed her walls and made her way through the breach. Where were then the privileges of birth and the distinctions of quality? Were not all ranks and degrees leveled at that time and promiscuously huddled together? Every house then was a scene of misery, equally filled with grief and confusion. The slave and the man of quality were in the same circumstances, and everywhere the terror of death and slaughter was the same unless we may say the fright made the greatest impression on those who had the greatest interest in living. So, the city is not doing well. And because Innocent had been in Ravenna when this started to happen, he and his envoys and his ambassadors were not able to travel to return to the city before this happened. And when they got there, they would have actually been prevented from entering the city during the initial sack. So Innocent wasn't there in Rome and didn't actually have a chance to get back into the city after the sacking until 412. So even though the siege happened quickly, over three days, and the Goths didn't stay very long in Rome, they were able to keep him away for two years. However, there is an account from Zosimus that suggests a different story for Innocent, one that's somewhat predicating on understanding that Innocent would have been in the city at the time of the sacking or shortly thereafter, so... Zosimus tells us that the situation in Rome during the plunder was so dire and the threat from the Goths was so great that the Pope permitted the return of pagan worship and sacrifice. Oh, that's not good. Yeah, so this is from Historia Nova, Book 5. Quote, While they were occupied in these reflections, Pompeianus, the prefect of the city, accidentally met with some persons who were come to Rome from Tuscany and related that a town called Nevia had delivered itself from extreme danger, the barbarians having been repulsed from it by storms of thunder and lightning, which was caused by the devotion of its inhabitants to the gods in the ancient mode of worship. Having discoursed with these men, he performed all that was in his power according to the books of the chief priests. Recollecting, however, the opinions of those that were present, he resolved to proceed with greater caution, and proposed the whole affair to the bishop of the city, whose name was Innocentius. Preferring the preservation of the city to his own private opinion, he gave them permission to do privately whatever they knew to be convenient. They declared, however, that what they were able to do would be of no utility unless the public and customary sacrifices were performed, and unless the Senate ascended to the capital, performing there, and in different markets of the city, all that was essential. But no person daring to join in the ancient religious ordinances they dismissed the men who were come from Tuscany and applied themselves to the endeavoring to appease the barbarians in the best possible manner. So this version of the story has Innocent allowing pagan worship in private if that was what was so demanded by the old pagans of the city as some sort of temporary measure to get through the sack with it the least amount of violence. 
However, it also adds that, quote, no person dared to join the public rituals, which indicates the thoroughness of the Christianization in the last century that we've been looking at. Now, because there are so many historians that indicate that Innocent was not in the city at the time of the sacking, most historians consider Zosimus' accounts fairly dubious. It's very, extremely unlikely that the Bishop of Rome would have been willing to permit paganism now, after almost a hundred years of Christianization, and thirty years as the official state religion. But that doesn't mean it wasn't happening in the city, or that Zosimus' observations about a lack of public interest in paganism are off the mark. All it really tells us is that the temporary religious regression in the city wasn't happening with the blessing of the Pope. So, this is a pretty telling moment all at the same time, though, and it's definitely worth considering. So, in 30 years, enough of the citizens of Rome had been thoroughly Christianized that an opportunity to return to the ancient ways fizzles out and gains no momentum. Some sources say that maybe this permission for paganism happened during the siege the first time rather than during the sack, but that's equally unlikely because he was already working to get to the emperor. The other point about this that makes it very unlikely is that Alaric, the man who's actually sacking Rome, had actually embraced Christianity. Arian Christianity, but Christianity nonetheless. So the churches, for the most part in Rome, were the only things left relatively unharmed. And when I say relatively, I mean in comparison to the rest of Rome, which has been violently and horribly sacked. So, you know, basilicas were burned and goods were stolen, but the Church of St. Peter and St. Paul were left alone, as were some of the others. So, we have this accounted to us by Augustine in his City of God, Book 1, Chapter 1, quote, The reliquaries of the martyrs and the churches of the apostles bear witness to this for in the sack of the city they were open sanctuary for all who fled to them, whether Christian or pagan. To their very threshold the bloodthirsty enemy raged. There his murderous fury owned a limit. Thither did such the enemy as had any pity convey to those whom had given quarter, lest any less mercifully disposed might fall upon them. And indeed, even when those murderers who everywhere else showed themselves pitiless came to the spots where that was forbidden, which the license of war permitted in every other place, their furious rage for slaughter was bridled, and their eagerness to take prisoners was quenched. Thus escaped multitudes who now reproach the Christian religion and impute to Christ the ills that have befallen their city, but the preservation of their own life, a boon to which they owe to the respect entertained for Christ by the barbarians, they attribute not to our Christ, but to our own good luck. This is an interesting perspective. We're going to dig here for a little bit. The city that Innocent comes back to in 412 is a city that has been brutalized and traumatized. This idea of the eternal city had been shattered, and the security that Rome has known for 800 years is gone. The attitude and identity of the Romans as Romans is going to take a huge wound. And again, this is something we could do a whole episode on, if not multiple episodes on, just looking at how the identity of Romans changed after the sack of 410. As Jerome stated, quote, The city which had taken the whole world was itself taken. So... 
For any who had come to understand Rome as a monolith of power and continuity, this is irreconcilable. And just the same, the attitude and identity of Christianity had taken a fairly psychological hit. Even though the religion itself had come out relatively intact, it would be immensely difficult after that kind of attack to feel as hopeful and as optimistic as they had for the last hundred years in their own rising star. Their religion had spared them from the worst of the sacking of their property. But as we can hear in Augustine's account, this isn't going to go well for them in the long term, and it doesn't protect them from the other violence. There was murder, the rape of ascetics, and the awful, awful things that come with a violent invasion. And what's more, their attackers had been Christians. They were not the same type of Christians, they were Arians, but they had been a form of Christian. And this in itself would rock even the most secure of Christian identities, like we see with Augustine in his text, The City of God. You can feel really keenly his sense of loss and his struggle to make sense of the moral integrity of Christianity in the wake of a very, very brutal and immoral things being perpetrated by Christians. Rome has just been hit by the ancient world equivalent of a nuclear bomb, and that stunned silence and despair is going to be a lot for them to recover from, and a lot for the Pope to handle. So this is like a milestone moment. Like, I just... There's so much happening. So much happening. But things must go on. And and we do have to go on, because this is not the end of Innocent's story. This is only a part of it. And he has to come back, and he has to deal with what is going to go down with Christianity at this point. And despite the incredible shock of the sack of Rome, there are more controversies ahead. We have one more heresy to cover. Another? Yep. And I left it to the end because it happened after the sack of Rome, whereas everything else kicked off before that. So there are some debates about how the shift in character of Christianity after the sack of Rome impacted this particular heresy. So... This is going to be a big one, and it really is kind of just a product of its own time and circumstance. So this is the Pelagian controversy. Pelagianism is a theological theory that spread from the mid-4th century from a British monk called Pelagius. And yes, this is the Pelagius that we cited who wrote about the sack of Rome. The Pel... The- Pelage, oh god, I can't even get it out of my mouth. Pelagerize, yeah. Pelagerism. And and I'm calling him a British monk. Jerome says he was Irish, and either way, he was over in Britannia, so um, he's British from somewhere over there. And by the way, just as as a side note that might be important for how, how we progress with this, after the sack of Rome, Rome kind of abandons Britain, like entirely, like It is very much a, we need to deal with ourselves, you're on your own now, even though it was entirely a Roman province up until this point. Story for another show, but just keep that in mind as we deal with the British monk Pelagius. So Pelagius the monk had some specific ideas about human free will. He taught that human will, as it was created by God, was all that humans needed to conduct a life free of sin. He argued that original sin didn't actually taint humanity, 
and that the free will of mortals could be guided for good and away from sin without divine assistance. So, therefore, salvation could be achieved through a mortal's own effort. He says that, you know, God's grace assisted every good work, but human frailty to him was not a valid excuse for being able to not live a good and full Christian life. So, you know, he thinks that, you know, you can, you have everything within you that you need to earn your own salvation. So the reason that this is so problematic within the church is that thinking this way would be to reject the concept of grace, specifically God's grace, and the biblical understanding that perfection was impossible in a human being without divine grace. Now, the issue here that part of what will become known as Pelagianism was this series of beliefs that arose from Pelagian's original ideas. Not his plagiarized ideas. It's his plagiarized ideas, yes. He will actually condemn some of the ideas that get associated with his name during his lifetime. He'll be like, no, no, um, that's not what I was saying at all. So it's hard to suss out which beliefs and, and values were actually his entirely and which ones got added on later during the jumble-bumble that is history. So keep that in mind. Pelagius himself had no desire to cause this kind of ruckus in the church. He was a morally upright ascetic left alone in Britain. He had no idea what was going to become of his optimistic view of humanity. But ultimately, what we see is that the Pelagians, not Pelagius himself, but the Pelagians who take his ideas, generally reject original sin and the necessity of God's grace and on some occasions they will criticize the Catholic Orthodox view of original sin and call it Manichaeanism, because we know how much the church loves to be compared to Manny and friends. And this had caused quite a stir in different places across Christendom, particularly in Carthage, which had gone ahead and they held a few synods to this purpose. In 411, they have a synod to condemn a priest called Celestius, who had espoused Pelagius' ideas, and then they had a synod in 416 to condemn Pelagianism as a whole. So Pope Innocent receives the decisions of these synods, along with personal letters from a handful of the African bishops, including St. Augustine, who took this matter extremely personally especially because St. Augustine had been really into Manichaeanism when he was young and had actually left the Christian church at one point to follow Manny and friends for about 10 years before he came back to Christianity. Ah, uh, yes. You had mentioned that. Yeah. So it really chapped his ass to hear the very Catholic original sin being compared to Manichaeanism. He's not on board with that. And also, as we were just discussing, Augustine wasn't feeling particularly the most optimistic, neither was the Roman Church, so hearing that God's grace wasn't even a thing for them to turn to in their most shell-shocked of moments probably sat more poorly with them than it might have otherwise. They are not in a place to hear this man basically say, all you need is yourself to do all of the right things. So... Innocent decidedly confirmed the decision of the Carthaginian synods and affirmed his position with Augustine. Absolutely, he says. The Pelagians, they need to be seen as heresy. 
Not only was God's grace valid, it was needed right now in the church. But then, in 415, a synod was held in Diospolis by a bishop called Orosius, which came to a different conclusion. This synod didn't see anything wrong with Pelagius' teachings, and they wrote to Innocent in his defense, which is nice. But this spurred the, the bishops at Carthage and at Numidia to go back to Synod, again in 416, and recondemn Pelagius all over again. So, <laughs> Innocent receives a letter from all three Synods, the one that says, hey, actually Pelagius is okay, and two that say, wait a sec, no, we said no. And he, he was probably, at this point, based on who Innocent is, pretty annoyed that Diospolis was trying to overturn a decision that had already been confirmed by the Pope, because he'd already confirmed it. So he wrote to the bishops in Carthage, praising them for maintaining his decision, and reminding them again of the prime authority of Rome, which had already spoken on this matter. So good on you for coming to the same conclusion. He then wrote to the bishop of Jerusalem, who was the archbishop over Diospolis, John II, and let him know how annoyed he was that Pelagians were being supported over in his region. Also, apparently, some supporters of Pelagius had attacked Jerome and the nuns at the convents of Bethlehem at this time, and John did nothing because he didn't like Jerome, so Innocent got on his case about that, too. I'm, I'm gonna say, Jerome is quite salty, and Pelagius is so sweet, so maybe I don't feel bad about that at all. And then he wrote to the members of the Diospolis Synod and rejected their decisions and confirmed Pelagius to be a heretic. This is official. This is done with. I have already confirmed this. Now I'm reconfirming this. We are done with this. But then poor Pelagius hears about this. And his feelings are very hurt. And he writes a personal confession of faith directly to the Pope, hoping to smooth this all over. He's like, I don't know what happened. Why is everybody condemning me? I'm just this poor little ascetic monk who lives in Britain and I have some happy, optimistic ideas. So he writes directly to the public, let's, let's work this out. I don't want to be condemned. However, this letter never reaches Pope Innocent. Because he dies? He, he died. I called it. Yeah, so it will be received by Pope Innocent's successor, so we'll have to wait next week to see if poor Pelagius gets a fair shake or not. Cliffhanger. I have strong feelings about Pelagius. He's going to be with us for a bit. However, before we get to his death, what would a pope of this era be if it didn't have a basilica that they founded or had dedicated to them? We have to have buildings. So... Innocent is no exception to this, although it's said that he didn't really accomplish it on his own. It's said that through the funding of Vestina, quote, a wealthy matron, Innocent was able to found a church in Rome, which he dedicated to the saints Gervasius and Protasius, called the Titulus Vestinae. He's got a sugar mama. He does. He has a sugar mama to build some churches. And it is a small church, but interestingly surviving all of that time on the Via Nazionale. It actually still exists, and the street that it is built on, um, the main level when it was built at the time of the street is much lower than it is today, as we have the building of history, things go up. So the difference is quite large from where the street is to where the church was actually built, so you have to walk down this really very strange staircase to get to it, because the church is hidden and it's kind of low, and 
still there. So you can actually see where the streets of ancient Rome were 2,000 years ago, or well, 1,600 years ago, and where they are now. I have a photo for you. Yeah. You can have a look of this little sunken church. Show me the bitty boy. It's called San Vitale today, and here is your bitty boy. Oh, it's so bitty. It's so bitty. It's so You see how the difference of where the street is and where it is, it's quite significant. So it's kind of cool. That's that's the street level over on Via Nazionale from then till now. So Pope Innocent died on the 12th of March, 417, of natural causes, which, considering the intensity of this time period in Rome, could have absolutely gone a different way. So it's pretty impressive. He was originally buried in a basilica on the Catacomb of Pontian on the Via Portuensis, where Anastasius was buried. But in 846, his remains were moved by Duke Lindolf of Saxony with the approval of Pope Sergius II to Gandersheim Abbey in Lower Saxony in Germany. It is also said that he brought the relics of Anastasius as well, but we know from last week that Anastasius is mostly back in Italy. Maybe there's a little bits of him. You know, we said most of his body was in Italy. And in 881, the bishop officially dedicated this abbey, Gandersheim Abbey, to Anastasius and Innocent. And Innocent is still there today. So now, after quite a lot of turbulence in this episode, it is time for us to rate him. Oh, Lord. Okay. Mm-hmm. You have some feels? I don't know what I'm going to rate him. Okay, well, let's have a look at it. Papatum and Phallium. So he is consistently referred to as an energetic and zealous pope by all sources, and we see that playing out in his active participation, dealing with heresy, setting orthodoxy, reminding the whole Christian world that he is the guy on the top. He has a role in the Pelagian controversy, which is good for papal authority, bad for poor Pelagius. As a result of all of the massive work that he does, you know, sometimes he's seen as being quite aggressive and heavy-handed in his intervention, leaving the East to feel slightly alienated by the West, but not enough that this evolves into anything at the time. It really does seem like his focus was on authority less than unity, because unity would come from uniformity if they had a head authority, so... He also uh, maintained a reputation of being a good, solid pope through the ages, still being described by priests and historians today, including Johann Peter Kirsch, as a highly gifted individual who fulfilled admirably the duties of his office. So quite a lot. Yeah, um, all right. I would like to give him a seven. Okay, that's a good score. I'm going to give him, my total score for him would be a six. But I'm really unhappy with him for the whole Pelagian thing, so I'm going to give him a 5. He's going to get a 12 for Papatum and Valium. It's pretty good. Fructus prohibitum. The only thing here, really, is we could count the giving potential permission for paganism. It's quite scandalous for Christianity, but it might be a nice degree of toleration within the city. And it's probably not true. So do we want to give him a point for that? Can we give him a half a point? If we give him a half point each, I think that works. We'll give him a one just because the story's there. And if it, if we had any actual inklings that that was true, it would be worth some serious points. One is good. So that's a one for Fructus Prohibitum. 
secular rye and pactum. Man, he's had some to deal with. Yeah, we have the sack of Rome. This is impacting a lot of secular people. It is not his fault, but I mean, he tried to interview for peace. He was unsuccessful. But I don't think anyone on the planet, even if, like, Jesus himself parted the clouds and said, Honorius, get your head together, I, I don't know that it would have worked. So um, this might be a situation where we have to credit him for trying more than if he actually succeeded. Pagans definitely got it worse in the sack, so being Christian probably helped. Um, you know, there's the might have allowed paganism to exist thing. It's really interesting here, we have to point out, because this is the category about secular people, Christianization is at such a level that even the temptation of being able to return to the old ways kind of fizzles and doesn't have any legs. So there is definitely a Christian impact in the city now, and that is affecting the secular population. But he did try. He tried so hard. So I'm going to give him a six for his efforts. Oh, okay. I was leaning... Around a, a five-ish, so yeah, okay. that's probably good. I mean, he tried. That's a lot to deal with. And it's not just that he tried. He, like, left and went to Ravenna, and when he tried to come back, admirably tried to come back, he still couldn't get in. So there there was a big effort involved there. So an 11 seems fair. Fossium Sanctus. Here you go. There's his face. He looks so sad. He does look really sad. It is kind of just a a sad man. He's standing at the gates of Rome. <laughs> He's not let, being let in. He is just like, oh God, it's happening. You know, I, it's not bad. It's not good. There's really nothing about it. So for me, it's definitely like middle of the road. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let me in! Yeah, exactly. For those of you who cannot see the gif that I sent Brie, it is definitely Eric Andre yelling at a fence. Yes, that is what it is. You know, otherwise, he's a pretty normal-looking man. He's not good, it's not bad, so for me, that is a solid five. Yeah, I mean, he's not... Uh, I don't give him a four. He's so sad. He is so sad. He makes me feel bad for him. He's inspiring emotion in you. That should be worth some points. No, that should negative <laughs> points. They aren't good emotions. Okay, fair enough. So you will give him a four. I will give him a five. He'll get a nine. The more I have to look at him, the more points I'm going to deduct. So we'll give him a 2.25. And now, because these images are... I have three more images for you to look at. But I swear, they're, they are the same, so I'm going to send them all at once, because Ooh. I don't think there's anything worth um, saying about them, because it's just a man in a hat. There is nothing remarkable about he it. He looks like a torpedo. The middle one also kind of has that 10,000 mile stare. <laughs> yeah, he's real, he's real high. Or sad again. He just looks a little sad, so. I don't know why this one is really happy. That's wrong. Oh, yeah, he looks pretty... Well, he's also a lot younger there, so, you know, maybe Oh, he didn't beginning. have to deal with being sad yet. Yeah, so this is a before and after. So that gives him a 2.25. Tempus Pontificus. So December 22nd, 401, to March 12th, 417, 16 years for a score of four. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! 
Yes, feast day, March 12th, although his feast day was previously celebrated on July 28th in the Roman calendar, it is now March 12th, so that's his death day. That's what it is. He's not a patron saint of anything. I feel like he needs to be. Oh, I don't know what, though. Do you have any good ideas this time? He was just a a big old jumble of dealing with things, and we got a lot of what about something like about how he let everyone know that he was the boss? Like aggressive self-affirmation? Oh, yeah, okay. All right. So he will be our patron saint of aggressive self-affirmation. You know, he stands in front of the mirror and he says, I'm freaking awesome. I'm the best. Like a boss. Like a boss. Because I am the boss. I'm the boss of all of you bishops. That's right. I'm going to write a letter. I'm going to tell them that. So his total score. Wow. Did he do okay? He did pretty good. So his score is a 31.25. That is a pretty good score. He scored the same at the exact same as Pope Vicious Sericius. I never forget that he's so vicious. He scored significantly higher than his alleged father, who scored a (laughs) 7. <laughs> I forgot that we gave him such a poor score. <laughs> we sure did. So I mean it's it's pretty good. It puts him whoa, that puts him in fifth place. He's tied for fifth place with Vicious Sericious. That's amazing. That is very impressive. Good job, Innocent. So on that note, we have to ask if he is popey, pizzazzy, and profound enough for a papable I cannot give it to him. You, oh, really? No. I mean, he tried really hard. If he had succeeded with Honorius. Yeah, this would have been 100% papable. If he had turned away Alaric, it would be a pull. I can see where you're coming from. I was almost prepared to make an argument for him. But, yeah, I don't know. I... It's not strong enough. I really, I think he definitely deserves some credit for all of the papal primacy stuff. But you know what clinches it for me? It's the Pelagius, so I just, uh, yeah, I just feel so bad for that little monk who got all of his feelings hurt. So um, I'm going to hurt your feelings, innocent, and give you a no. However, that is not the end of our episode because it's time for a poop watch. Yeah, please tell me. You banned me from social <laughs> media, which is okay, because I yep. went to Ice and Fire Con, so a lot of my social media is just pictures of Ice and Fire Con right now. Although, to be fair, this happened, like, two days ago, so this is, like, brand new, uh-huh. and I did not want you to see it. Okay, so, are you ready for the latest Pope Francis news? Yeah, yeah, tell me, because, yeah, then I can get back on social media. Okay, on April 30th. 31 clergymen and theological scholars have issued an open letter accusing Pope Francis of committing heresy. Oh, what? (laughs) What'd he do? (laughs) This charge is based on what they allege is the, quote, manifold manifestation of Pope Francis's positions contrary to the faith and his dubious support of prelates who have in their lives shown to have a clear disrespect for the church's faith and morals. Do you want to guess which one of Pope Francis's stances have them so up in arms? Um, is it, is it money? 
It's not money. Oh, no. This is a this is one that to me, as soon as I read it, I went, oh, I know what this is about. This is about the fact that he does not have hellfire and brimstone in his heart for gay people. Oh. I mean, they have they have kind of laid it out in a lot of detail and they've made a lot of points, but it's it's generally ridiculous. I'm putting this out now. This is generally ridiculous. I'm going to read you some of what they uh how they phrase it so that you'll hear their perspective, even if I'm being totally biased in the way that I report it. These 31 men, I don't care. I don't want them to explain this to me. When I read you the last um, reason that they have here, I want you to remember that these people claim to be the top theological scholars, okay? Okay. This is what they base their argument on. His protection and promotion of clerics who reject Catholic teaching on marriage, sexual activity, and moral law in general— that he praises prelates and lay people who openly dissent from the Catholic doctrine and morals, that he rejects Catholic teaching on marriage and sexual activity and moral law and on grace and the forgiveness of sins, i.e. he doesn't want gay people to be considered an abomination and that he believes that everybody should be forgiven, um, that Catholic experts have been replaced by heterodox experts in the Pontifical Academy for Life, Failing to speak against the Irish referendum on abortion in 2018. Allowing the Chinese government to appoint bishops. Heresies and serious errors in his apostolic exhortation Amoris Laetitia, which was an exhortation he gave on marriage and the pastoral care for the family. They're concerned there with the issue of sacrament of reconciliation for divorced couples who have civilly remarried. So I guess they shouldn't be allowed that. And here's the last one. And I'm going to just read you a quote from CruxNow.com, who reported on this. Quote, this is one of their issues with him committing heresy, that he used a staff that the authors claim was satanic at the opening mass of the 2018 Youth Synod and using a rainbow-colored cross at World Youth Day in Panama. Now, here's, here's the caveat. The staff used at the Synod was an artistic representation of Christ on the cross presented to the Pope at a youth event in Rome, and although rainbow colors are associated with the LGBT movement, a rainbow flag is used to represent peace in many parts of the world, especially in Italy. <sighs> <laughs> so these people are not coming across as very well informed to me. Why are they so mad? They need to calm down. Yeah. They, they and and they 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 actually like credit themselves as being the conservative theologians and all of this garbage. So this letter that they've written is a follow up to one they've already written to the same people in 2017, which was issued as a quote filial correction that argued that Francis had quote effectively upheld seven heretical positions about marriage, moral life, and the reception of sacraments and was causing heretical opinion to spread in the church. Is it heresy if the Pope does it? Well, I mean, we've had that question with, with uh, we had that with Marcellus, or sorry, Marcellinus. We've asked about the heresy and embracing that position, so. To be fair, that was more like, and then I had to, you know, serve another god for a hot minute. This is like, maybe we shouldn't be so mean. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the heresy they're worried about. Um, this is uh, the heresy bit is that whole idea of is it heresy when a pope does it? We're gonna have to answer that question throughout our series, so it's a good one to keep in your back pocket. It's coming. 
this letter that they wrote, the first one in 2017 didn't accuse him of heresy, but they sure have now. They're just up in the ante. So I will finish with their closing statement, which is, We limit ourselves to accusing him of heresy on occasions where he had publicly denied truths of the faith and then consistently acted in a way that demonstrates that he disbelieves these truths that he has publicly denied. The letter then asks the bishops and the College of Cardinals to, quote, take the steps necessary to deal with this grave situation. That amused me greatly. What a bunch of stupid people. So. (laughs) They're so mean. Now, perfect segue to a bunch of people that are not stupid. We have thank yous to make. Yeah, these people aren't mean. No, these people are being absolved of their temporal sins because they support us on Patreon and they have gotten themselves a papal indulgence. So thank you very much to Jessica Enns, Steve Cook, Bjorn Svartelson. Oh, Bjorn's here. Yeah, Bjorn's here. And that's my best guess for you is Svartelson. If I got it wrong, please let me know. And we have a new patron whose name on Patreon is no time to lose. And the to lose is as if the French name to lose. That's such a good username. It made me giggle. So thank you all. And you are absolved of your sins. Ego te absolvo. Also, we need to make a special thank you also to Jessica Enns, the same one we mentioned above, who sent us an email, including the excerpt on Pope Caius from the book Rings of the Fingers by George Coons. And some information of Roma Subterranea Novissima by Polly Agrini. So if I can get my Latin done, we have some excellent source material to dig through. So thank you so, so much for sending us that. That was really cool, and I can't wait to dig into it more. Librarians are great. Yes, librarians! If you're listening and you're a librarian, we love you. You're super cool. So we also need to thank uh, Totalis Rankium and Rex Factor. I don't know who those people are. What? <laughs> Ugh. Fry. Um, <laughs> I've never heard of them. We also need to thank the Can't Make This Up History Pod, who shouted out to us on their Fly Girls episode. Very, very cool. Uh, and the None Dare Call It Ordinary podcast, which has been recommending us. Thank you very much. And the Presidency's podcast, which is recommending us. Thank you very much. You guys are all amazing. So with that... With this very long journey, we could say thank you and goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> goodbye. <laughs>